bandwidth for JS Party is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. Welcome to JS Party, a weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. Tune in live on Fridays at 3 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time. Head to changelaw.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at JS Party FM. And now on to the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to JS Party, where it's a party every week with JavaScript. I'm Michael Rogers. I'm Rachel White. And I'm Alex Sexton. All right, and we have some fun topics today. Um, we're going to get into React VR. Before that, uh, Alex, why don't you just give us a quick primer on React? Sure. Uh, I, I talked a little bit about a lot of the parts of React uh, in the past on the show, but in case this is your first episode or you just need a refresher or you just love hearing the sound of my voice, um, let's, let's do some React uh, talk. So React is a framework um, and is a framework primarily for rendering DOM elements onto a page and um, doing that efficiently. So, efficiently, yeah. Uh, so the core concept behind React is that you write your markup inside of React and you uh, use kind of their management of life cycle of, of data changing and then you try to uh, build your HTML with data in React, and then as your data changes, uh, React can somewhat automatically uh, change your web page to reflect the data that has changed uh, inside of your 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 state. So uh, the that's a core concept in pretty much every current framework. Uh, the idea of data binding. Different frameworks do it differently, uh, and the kind of novel approach uh, that React took, uh, which is very popular now, a few years later, is that um, they will re they want to make re-rendering very cheap. Um, so what they do is they render what's called a virtual DOM, uh, which is really just an object. It's a JavaScript object. And instead of having children, you have an array called children, things like that. Instead of attributes on DOM elements, you just have properties um, as like a second argument to, to, to an object. And so Really, it's just like this very simple representation of a DOM. And then anytime data changes, it goes and changes it in this object version of the DOM uh, instead of the actual HTML page that you can see. And then once it makes all the changes from all the data that's changed, it runs what's called a DOM diff against those uh, the old one and the new one. And it says, okay, the only thing that changed is that the class name property on this one object way down... Uh, and this part of the page changed. That's the it. So it'd be silly if we threw away, like in, back in the backbone days, you would throw away all your HTML and then you re-render your entire page because one class name changed. Uh, maybe it would just re-render an entire view. But either way, you'd re-render a whole bunch for very small data changes. And so in the React world, it knows which DOM element maps to that subsection of your page. And uh, it can just swap out the little class name section very quickly. And so DOM diffing is very fast uh, based on some of the constraints that they put in. Um, and so you can get very, very fast renders without having to kind of manage which part of the page that you're updating manually. It just feels very data bound, even though it's, it's not even necessarily data bound in the same sense that uh, like people might expect like out of uh, Ember or something similar to that. Is that a good overview? Yes. And it, it's a good segue into why they wanted to make React VR, uh, which is a brand new young React baby. Um, it's like so young, there's stuff that was pushed to the repo like nine minutes ago. So it basically React VR was started as a way for people that are already super familiar with um, how to write React applications uh, can just like jump right in and craft like VR experiences. It's not going to be as super robust as being able to build stuff in like A-Frame or 3JS for VR type things, but it'll allow you to use a lot of the components and props and state that you use in React and use those to create, I, I guess, things in the 360 space. So if you wanted to, the, the, the like starting the starting example that they have for React VR is just crafting a 360 view from a panoramic um, like a panoramic image and it's 
it's like 20 lines and it just lets you set all of the properties in line in the in the component and then it lets it wrap around and so obviously this is only going to be compatible with um whatever browsers or browsers or web vr ready but if you go to the react vr documentation it tells you all of the basic things that are available right now and uh it seems like it's still obviously actively being developed on but you're able to go in and try it out if you don't even know how to do vr but know how to do react which i think is the point that's like what they're going for they want to be able i mean i feel like now react is going into every single space that they could like humanly shove their way into especially with like react native and now react vr there's nothing that you can do or there's nothing you can't do with react now well, I, I think that what's really paying dividends here is React made a pretty big shift in kind of the web framework world where before React, you know, web frameworks were like jQuery, like you put them in a page and then you get that API in the browser and you'd mess around with it in the browser in your code. And they yeah. were like, you know what? Everybody's using all these compile to tool chains. Why don't we build a web framework that's built as a compile chain? And so we will have some of our code in the browser, but it's actually going to work in this tool chain that allows you to add features to the language, allows you to, you know, much more easily and more modularly pull in new areas like, <laughs> like VR and things like that. And so it has this like much bigger, bigger extensibility model, the web frameworks that we've seen before. And so now we're seeing stuff like React Native and React VR. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it, it's definitely making uh, different ways of programming more accessible. Um, I guess the the right way to phrase it would be like, I don't need to learn all these different frameworks in order to achieve different things anymore. Like a React dev can just learn React and be able to do stuff, you know, um, cross uh, platform, mobile, iOS, like now they can do VR and like gaming and stuff. And there's not, there's not really a need to have too many dependencies or learn different ways to write. That's pretty cool. Pretty cool stuff. I mean, I don't even use react, but I actually think that this stuff is pretty cool. And this is, <laughs> this is a good approach. This this actually makes me like I was already starting to learn React and this makes it more exciting, like the potential for being able to get something out into multiple realms by writing it a certain way is like super exciting. Yeah, I mean, you know, normally I would I would be kind of skeptical of like the the modularity of building things this way and, and kind of tightly coupling them to react but so far in the vr space and in the 3d space what we've seen are like a bunch of giant towers of code right that are that are like their own plug-in system and their own huge thing anyway and so there's not really like a kind of um smaller module critique to this necessarily i mean if you just wanted to do like kind of not VR, but 3D programming, there is a bunch of like, great stuff there that McColl is doing with small modules. But for the most part, like this is this is competing with other, you know, really giant uh, frameworks as well and being integrated in, into a framework that's much more understood than, you know, whatever random framework that somebody just wrote for their VR library. It's probably a lot better. Yeah. And it seems like like people are really jumping in and already I mean, there's already 23 issues and like six pull requests to like make fixes to the library. Like there, there's some small things, but like I think that people that are already involved in, you know, doing stuff with React are going to I don't know, I think it's going to be interesting to see. But also, what is it? I mean, Facebook. Facebook owns Oculus, right? Mm hmm. Okay, so obviously there's going to be some kind of other VR thing here. But yeah, if, you followed, if you followed F8 um, the past week, they, uh, they're definitely into like VR and stuff like that. And even last F8, they had like some big demo where uh, Mark Zuckerberg went to his house and, and picked up things around, whatever. Um, <laughs> but uh, he, he was talking about how the first wave of vr is actually going to be just augmented reality type stuff yeah uh, and then they did a bunch of like demos on just like the camera app with filters over your face or with um you know different objects in the room different things like that and i imagine uh from what i can see from i obviously not use react vr yet um but it seems like this would be completely appropriate for that too just like not in stereo um and and, and that would work as well 
So I imagine th this this could could equally be used whether you're you're you have a stereoscopic 360 image or if it's just you know on your camera. But the the interesting thing to me kind of is like I wonder how much of like if you're going to build some Facebook um, like if Facebook wanted to build an augmented reality app with this uh, like based on facial recognition and it could just like pop up information about someone as it recognized their face in the augmented reality, which is like always the cool cyborg thing to do, you know, enemy or whatever on, on the, on the side strength level and, and karma. But, uh, the, the interesting thing to me is like how much of their Facebook, uh, like react stuff could they pull in and use in both places? Because if they're using like redux and it's all just like, state management via these you know like pure functions that do x and y and z th then it seems maybe reasonable that they could like pull in a bunch of the like endpoints for passing faces down to a thing and then getting data back and, and all sorts of stuff um or like friending someone in the real life in the real world is like an action that could already be in their redux like it, it's interesting to me how much of their their app they could use between their website their mobile app, which is which is at least partially React uh, native, and then their React VR kind of augmented reality situation. I'd be very interested to see code reuse. Yeah, I mean, well, they're already. I'm kind of like creeped out about about it now that you say it that way. Like, <laughs> only because like, obviously, my only relationship with Facebook is going on and seeing whatever events I've been invited to for the week, but. You can see the new, I don't know, how can I put this? Well, they have the 360 video support now that's like in the mm -hmm. the browser. And I'd be, I'd be interested to see if like that kind of stuff plays with this kind of VR experience, whatever. Because it's just yeah. taking it from like the 2D experience of where you're dealing with it in your browser and then having the stereos stereoscopic view. I don't know. I think it I think it's going to translate. I think I'm scared for when the web and VR integrate cuz like I don't want that. That's not my VR future, <laughs> but I'm sure that's the monetization of the VR future that we're going to be dealing with. Oh, for sure. I mean, Google Glass was ahead of the curve in the sense of like one day we'll all have that contact in or whatever. Uh, <laughs> definitely behind uh or the the curve uh, in what a human would agree to put on their face. <laughs> for, I just I'm just thinking like for a while every tech article about like the future of technology would just like have some douchebag with like a, a Google glasses on like in a context that it didn't make any sense to have it on. Mm -hmm. And then lately they've been talking about VR future and it's always like somebody in a random place with like a big Oculus Rift on their head. Yeah. Well, that was me yesterday and everybody was making fun of me. I was like doing some VR or mixed reality work um in public and everyone was just like you look like an idiot <laughs> i feel like uh if you go back far enough every pitch for computers in the very beginning was like you can it replaces a typewriter and then it was like you can store recipes on them uh and then uh i think since then it's uh once they hit kind of the business world more more so um everything is they'll change the way you do meetings so first it was like second life if you just do your meetings in second life everything will be good and then if you just do your meetings with google glass on or with vr or with whatever meanwhile everyone hates their like yep, actual exactly. audio conference software <laughs> like we could just like solve the actual audio conferencing yep. problem that'd right. be great my favorite one of these like in the future things is like this. Uh, I think it was like a Time magazine drawing of um, somebody with like a watch on with a floppy disk <laughs> that they're putting into it. It's amazing. Nice. <laughs> I just was like trying to look up more VR stuff and I mistyped a URL and now I'm on one of those pages that just keep on telling me critical alert from Windows. Your computer has been blocked even though I'm on my Mac. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine this, but in like VR. <laughs> that, yeah, you blue screen of death and just eat it on the curb. This is my personal <laughs> hell. All right, we're good. Sorry for derailing. 
No worries. No worries. I mean, <sighs> VR is going to be it's such a personal thing. Like, I don't I don't mm. know. I, it's it's interesting to me that <sighs> obviously Facebook like wants to get in that space, especially even if it is a personal thing. But like, <sighs> I don't know. I, I wish I want somebody to do something with VR that is cooler than what I've seen. And if Facebook can make it so that you can have more of a connected experience while you're in these virtual spaces, I'm OK with it, even if it is like a crappy second life. You know, I'm I'm sort of surprised that like there isn't more effort going into just bridging the Facebook um, like social networking stuff into games. I mean, games are like bigger than Hollywood movies now. They're huge. And this, it seems like this kind of technology would penetrate there before it would penetrate into like a website that I visit. I'm not a huge gamer, but I think there is quite a bit of social stuff in, in games these days. It is a little bit right. interesting that it's not super Facebook heavy, though I'm pretty sure you can like import all sorts of Facebook stuff. Part, part of it is like, Microsoft v Facebook uh, in, in some sense, like Microsoft has their own identity management and like, why would you import your Facebook account when you could import your live account? Things, things like that. But because I um, talk to people on that live account all the time. Yeah, oh, yeah. No, uh, I'm a big <laughs> MSN messenger user. Lots of baby pictures on that, <laughs> yeah. on that, Facebook, on that Microsoft live. <laughs> so I, I can see why it doesn't have it like uh, Sony doesn't really have a competitor, so it's interesting that like I don't think I, I don't I haven't bought a PlayStation, whatever their recent one was, um, in a while, but I don't think there's a ton of Facebook integration. But they all have at least a Facebook app and things like that. Where yeah, the integration. Maybe, sorry, the integration. Like I mean, I am I buy like pretty much every single video game system whenever it comes out, just because. I'm an adult and I can, and it makes me feel good. Mm -hmm. And pretty much the only like social integration that they have with it in the sharing feature is just posting screenshots or posting videos to your timeline. It's not like I can't tell like who that I'm friends with on Facebook is also playing these certain games. It's like there's the social stuff that's tied to just your singular like sony playstation account your singular nintendo world account and then right. like your xbox live account and i i agree with you there's like definitely a missed um a missed thing there but i also think that like so many people don't understand exactly how data and privacy works so they're a little more apprehensive about freely sharing that kind of stuff and then I mean, I don't even care. So everyone can have my data as long as I can play video games with my friends. Uh, I, I think that th they're missing a huge opportunity here, though, because like I, I don't know about your Facebook, but mine is like mostly dominated by my extended family who are right wing lunatics. And I would love it like when, you know, there's some kind of political argument to just say, you know what, let's just take this to like, you know, the first person <laughs> shooter. Like, like, yeah, let's just take this to Counter-Strike. <laughs> Settle it there. Let's shoot each other for a while. I think that we'll feel better at the end of it than we will be commenting on this Facebook thread. Yeah. I think that's really where uh, VR helps because then it's, you know, you're actually killing your uncle, um, which is, you know, great. That's what you want. Um, the, I, I wonder if it's partially because video games, uh, like social aspects are often uh, such a hellscape that like, no one wants to attach their actual identities to their avatars or maybe even further, like many games like ask you to assume the identity of a, a different avatar, like you become the the person. So I wonder if it would kind of take you out of it. Interesting, like dynamics, but I doubt any of those reasons I just said were the actual reasons they didn't have a Facebook integration <laughs> it was tighter. Yep. And I think it's about time for a break uh, with that. So let's uh, let's have a little break uh, now. And then when we come back, we will discuss the decentralized peer to peer web. First sponsor of the show today is our friends at Sentry, helping you to find and fix your errors in your applications. You can start tracking your errors today totally free. They support React, Angular, Ember, Vue, Backbone, and Node frameworks like Express and Koa. You can view actual code and stack traces, including support for source maps, 
see the error's URL, parameters, and session information, and even prompt your user for feedback when you have front-end errors. Head to jsparty.fm slash sentry, start tracking your errors for free today, no credit card required, get off the ground with their free plan, and when you're ready to expand your usage, simply pay as you go. Once again, jsparty.fm slash sentry, and now back to the show. And we're back. All right, let's get into the decentralized web. Um, so peer-to-peer -peer web, decentralized web is, I think it's best described actually as a movement. It's not really like a, a, a specific set of technology. There's a bunch of technologies, a bunch of projects, a bunch of people. Um, but a lot of different people are trying to decentralize the web, trying to take a lot of the centralized kind of cloud services that we've now become so reliant on and, and are basically moving all of our data to um, and trying to actually build uh, applications that are more peer-to-peer, -peer, more decentralized. And the interesting thing about this movement is that it has, you know, big bearded fellows like Max Ogden and, uh, you know, like mad scientists like Ferros and Substack and cyber hobos like Dominic Tarr and uh, but but also uh, like Tim Berners-Lee and Vint Cerf and all these people that like literally built the early web and the internet. Um, so it's a it's a very interesting mix of like boomers and millennials <laughs> that are all kind of, you know, crazy web people uh, now working together on this stuff. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's just start kind of rolling out some questions and stuff like that. But there's, you know, WebRTC is is like the the peer to peer protocol in the browser right now, and it's very different from how, um, say, like BitTorrent establishes connections. So there's yeah. a lot of work to try and make, um, to try and bring different ideas from you know prior peer to peer systems to it, and also building new peer to peer systems on top of it. Is is WebRTC what you're using for that one um, site where you can like talk to that you're actually working on where you can talk to people? in yep, the browser cool yep, awesome yeah. so so web uh like peer-to-peer -peer stuff isn't necessarily just uh i guess when i think of peer-to-peer -peer, i automatically just think of like early 2000s file sharing or like pirating <laughs> stuff so this is more of a peer-to-peer -peer type of sense where it's just data sharing in a lot of different ways yeah yeah and and i think but even the file sharing component, right? Like that didn't really work on the web before. Like if you wanted to share a file on the web, you would basically upload it to a place and then, yeah. and then have it be downloaded to people. And now, um, you know, Ferros wrote WebTorrent, which really ports all of the BitTorrent concepts over to uh, WebRTC. And let me in interrupt. Fact, I, I used yeah. to send transfers via AIM all the time <laughs> and it worked fine unless uh, you had a router that didn't support a UNP mapping or something like that. That was so. also not wow. on the web, though. That was not on the web. That was in oh. AI. That was in the AIM yeah, you client. Could, you right? could put HTML into there, and it would uh, <laughs> change the text. So, <laughs> so that counts as the web now. Mm -hmm. AOL is the web. Yeah. I don't know what you're doing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I think that the file sharing example is kind of interesting, right? Because, uh, you know, unlike the the regular web where this network is just up and we kind of know how to get to things. And if you give it an address, it can figure out how to download that content. Um, in decentralized systems, like you have to establish new networks uh, for distributing things and you have to figure out how people connect to these networks and if they stay on them or if they leave. And we have like, you know, now decades of file sharing attempts to do this, right? And you know, everything from Kazaa and LimeWire and, and Napster back in the day. And now BitTorrent is sort of like the best of breed of all of this. And so if you want to establish a network for transferring and keeping alive a large file, um, they've really nailed that. And WebTorrent is like a pretty, pretty direct port of that. But for, for other use cases, like, you know, I want to have uh, chat rooms or, you know, like, like phone calls or all these other cases, like how to establish that network is, is not as well, like people have not figured that out necessarily yet. Or figured out the best way for that, I guess. Yeah. So, how this is this might not be a relevant um, question, but like, does blockchain type of distributed database things does that fall into like um, web based yes. peer to peer stuff? Yes, yes, yes. I mean, a lot of them aren't web based yet, but there are a few that are, and we're getting much more kind of web support all the time. Uh, Bitcoin JS is like a Bitcoin. 
um, client library as well. I know that people are kind of working on an Ethereum one. Um, IPFS uh, is working on some blockchain stuff that will work in Go and in the browser um, at some point. I, I think that like the, the best way to look at blockchains is that if you want to have a transaction log and you want to have a, a distributed transaction log, that's the best way to build it. It's not the best place to store large amounts of data. It's actually <laughs> yeah. really intense for that. Um, but if you want to just store a transaction log, it, it, it one, um, it's a good kind of cryptographically secure way to do those transactions. And two, kind of built into the way that you interact with the transaction log, it has everything that it needs to keep itself alive um, and keep its network alive. And that's one of the harder things to engineer. Um, and the thing that we have for, say, BitTorrent, but we don't have for a lot of other use cases. Would you like build operational transforms on top of like a decentralized blockchain web implementation? Is that like is that what we're talking about? Possibly, <laughs> possibly. I mean, I haven't. I, like, you, you maybe could, but I, I'm wondering if well, we have so much uh, other data on how to do like operational transforms on top of like Merkle trees and on top of like all okay. these other like distributable data structures. Yeah. That okay, I don't, okay. I don't know if it's actually like you know beneficial to do it. So, if you wanted to do peer-to-peer -peer Google Docs, you wouldn't need a blockchain or anything like that, which which is an encouraging statement to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I I think um with with the with the blockchain, right? Or anything any time that you really want um a, a a transaction log where more than one person is going to agree on every transaction, right? Um so you want it to be not eventually consistent but always consistent. <laughs> um you're going to sacrifice some performance, right? So if you're if you're editing a Google Doc collaboratively with eight people and every, you know, few keystrokes you want to save that, that's going to be problematic in something like a blockchain. Whereas if you actually just like take all the operational transforms, shove them into a log that gets distributed around everybody, people can, you know, agree to the same merges over time and deal with conflicts as they arise um, and still have like a pretty fast user experience. Got it. Uh, where does uh, Bram Cohen fall on the uh, cyber hobo scale? <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, he, he's had, has a company that's been around for like 10 years and, <laughs> and a salary from it. So I, I don't know if he's in cyber hobo status. Okay. <laughs> I don't think Good I put him there. I mean, yeah, I mean, Dominic Tarr, you know, chooses to just go and build a boat that he lives on for months at a time in New Zealand. So it's a little different. As you do. Yeah. Uh, and then he, the, he and then he comes back with like, you know, an entire new implementation of secure scuttlebutt or something. <laughs> as you do. Uh, mm -hmm. The the actual serious question, it, the web, um, kind of like when we talk about uh, app stores and we talk about um, what else? We've even talked about it on the show. We talked about, uh, we definitely talked about app stores, but e either way, we talk about uh, if you go and you put your app in the app store, you're, you're using like a centralized Apple control thing. And the way to like win that back is to, to like use the decentralized app store, which is the web. Um, mm -hmm. And so we often refer to like the fact that you can choose any server as long as you can like get an IP address, like, all the different things there's no like you, there's no single like internet server and mm -hmm. then you have to upload everything to the internet server and then they can turn things on or off certainly there are like states involved in like censorship and things like that but i don't think that's really mm -hmm. what we're talking so we're talking we're using part the word decentral we're, we're we're talking about the word decent well yeah it's a, but i think it's a different part of it uh mm -hmm. we're talking about the word decentralized uh a bunch but in my opinion the web is decentralized. It feels more like so. So th this is like pseudo decent. De, uh, I don't know. So you're, you're 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 right. You're right and you're wrong. Right. So like the the web is decentralized. Web services are not decentralized. So we anybody can put up a web service. Anybody can build something for the web. The people who engineered those protocols and built these systems really believed in that decentralization. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but. If I want to make a use a service to make a call, or I want to send a message to somebody else, or um, you know, I, I'm constantly putting my data into these services that are actually incredibly centralized. We have decentralized voice calling, right? That exists. I'm pretty sure. Voice well, I mean, the Skype has been backing off of 
of that actually. So Skype is isn't as peer to peer as it used to be. Um, we well, we're not talking we about peer to peer. We have my app roll call. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. I, I'm talking about like phone networks are decentralized. It's it's uh like my so, like, my service provider can talk to your service provider over an open standard. Yes, yes, yes. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Okay, you mean like real phone calls, like the thing that people or, or don't voice, use like, anymore. Uh, voice okay. <laughs> uh, phone calls, voice over IP is it has a similar standard. Like use IP addresses instead of phone numbers or whatever, but it like it works. Yep, yep. And it'll but it'll also fall back to to kind of, but okay, so to make that call though, right? Like um I log into a service that's centralized, um, I tell them kind of where I am. Um they tell me where another person is. We're we're entirely reliant on them. Um, you know, they store all of think, the metadata logs. I think it's logs. possible to like they, they, set up they your store. own servers, and you may have to like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, but like, okay, again, we need to make this usable, right? So, it, you know, and and without setting up your own server, you can visit, you know, roll, roll call, and you know, it will set up a point to point connection and never store any metadata or keep any sure. kind of logs of that transaction anywhere else. Um, and you know, it's all it's all encrypted and everything. So um, you don't have to worry about, you know, your providers violating your privacy. You don't have to worry about um, a lot of government intervention and stuff like that. Like th these are issues that we, we need to start caring about um, as this becomes a bigger and bigger chunk of the internet. So we, we need services that um, protect your privacy. And as soon as you want to protect a user's privacy, you sort of, the service provider loses access to read that data, right? Um, so we have very different models. We, if you don't have a central point of authority, um, you lose that as well. Another part of this that we're not talking about that is a really big part of the decentralized web is building offline applications. And mm. one, one of the hardest parts about building offline applications is that you lose that central authority. Like when I, when I go to Twitter and I get my timeline, it says that a bunch of people said things and I only believe that they said those things because Twitter told me that they did. But you know, if, if we're route, if, if we're, you know, putting a bunch of tweets into a local offline feed and then we're replicating that offline with a bunch of other people, um, I'm getting data, you know, about Alex from Rachel and she could have just changed it, <laughs> right? Like I don't, like I can't trust everybody in between anymore. We don't have the central authority. So we need, we need different mechanisms to sign that data and kind of cryptographically say like, you know, these, these are the right people and all that. So, you know, you run into a lot of the same problems with offline as you do with every other decentralized point. Um, and, and in fact, once you solve these problems, I think for offline, you naturally solve them for a lot of the other decentralized cases. Yeah, that's a good point. Mm -hmm. I think uh, the solution to everything is homomorphic encryption, right? Why don't you tell us what that is? <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is one of my favorite things. This is definitely a, a neuromo. Uh, uh, homomorphic encryption is uh, whenever you can perform the same, uh, like if you have a function, you can encrypt both the function and the input to the function, and the output is the encrypted version of the like plain text actual output so if you had like a function called uh add to um and then you sent two to it the output would be four and then if you had homomorphic encryption you would encrypt the two you would encrypt the add to function and you would get something encrypted out but if you decrypted it, it would be four and so it, the, like the the idea would be that you could have gmail um and gmail would be a hundred percent encrypted uh on the back end but one thing about an encrypted mail service is that like you can't search in it anymore and mail without search is effectively useless in my opinion uh so you'd either have to bring all the search locally which means you have to store all your mail locally in order to search it because that's the only place it can be decrypted or you could use homomorphic encryption to say encrypt my search parameter and then search for that encrypted thing in the encrypted email and then give me the encrypted results back and then i can decrypt and it'll be correct so essentially you can perform a search on encrypted data would be it's it's kind of early day it's not that early but it's going to take a long time for that to like exist and be good um but i think it solves a lot of like the the trust cases uh while enabling user experience at like end to end to end to end performance one of the most fascinating things about to me about all this is that 
um, we're not really waiting on a lot of web standards anymore. We're not really waiting on even um, like these cryptography libraries to exist. Like there are um, like encryption libraries right now that will work in the browser. What we're really lacking is like people just haven't figured out like what the usability of this looks like and, and how do you, you know, establish networks and move data around for all these different use cases. It's, so it's it's a very green field area for people to kind of get involved in if, if that's what you if that's what you're passionate about. Um, but you, we're, we're way past the stage where like, you know, you are the first, you know, person implementing a new web standard or you are the first person implementing a, an algorithm or something like that. Yeah. Like those are already there. It's just like we're all just figuring out how to use them still. Yeah. To be clear, though, uh, their homomorphic encryption still has a long way to go. And there's not just like a NPM mm. package that's going to do it for you um, or any <laughs> package that's going to do anything that I said for you, except for like very simple math. Um, anyways. Mm not a podcast on homomorphic encryption by any means. Um, so we end up with a lot of demos in this space. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. and there seems to, and we talk about node bots, we talk about uh, VR, we talk about uh, P2P, like this stuff. And all of it, I think, is massively interesting and is the future. But it keeps being the future, no matter how far into the future that we go, it's <laughs> still being the future. Uh, and so I'm wondering, I, like, what, what? So man, I, I, I would, I would push back a little bit on that. So, for instance, NodeBots were like new and novel in like 2012, right? Like, I think I had talks at NodeConf on it, and people were like, "What robots and JavaScript?" What? Yeah, for sure. But um, no one like ships yeah, yeah, yeah. a NodeBot as like their production robot. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. So, Sky, cool. I mean, Sky Skycatch is shipping, you know, a basically a drone for commercial construction sites that are like now kind of taking over all of Japanese construction um, and building like 3D maps of things that, you know, and, and the everything like on the bot is JavaScript and and Nodebot everything like in their cloud and their front end is all JavaScript. Like that's that's happening. Yeah, um, I, people, I guess yeah. what I what I really mean is that like it mm -hmm. does not is not the normal case. It's not like it's uh, like there's certainly there are people doing like WebRTC and and stuff like that. Like even Google does parts of this stuff for Google Hangouts. Like, um, but but I guess I'm I'm still waiting for the future where where all of this is just like def like this is how you would build it. And I don't know. That that was more my sentiment than like obviously someone does something for real. Well, the more people, but it is that... it is encouraging. Yeah. The, the more people that are trying to like do stuff with it is what's what it's going to take in order to get it to something where it's more used practically. Yeah, I, I guess w uh, my point isn't we should all stop working on these things because they're pointless. <laughs> they're not going to catch up. Uh, I, I hope that wasn't my uh, the, the thing that it sounded like. I'm just wondering what we can do to make it like the way people think like map onto these types of ideas uh, in a way that doesn't hurt user experience, like all those types of things. Yeah. Like what can we do to, to make it better? And obviously to like keep working is the, well, the easy answer. I have a question for both of you then. Um, is there anything that is currently out today that uses the kind of peer-to-peer -peer stuff that we just went over that you're excited about and see potential with it? Yeah, I'm trying to look up the name of it now, but they're, um, oh, I, I don't recall the name of the site. Chat Roulette? No, 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 no. Um, so, uh, so, so to back up what, what Alex said, there's definitely been a longer timeline with WebRTC from like, we've, we've been seeing demos probably longer than NodeBots maybe, and, and still haven't really seen a lot of like big production stuff. Um, and it, it seems like kind of never ending. <laughs> um, I think part of that is that the way that the audio and video is implemented is very kind of magical. It, it outside of that demo use case, um, it doesn't work and you can't really modify things very well. And it's incredibly difficult to use. Um, if you look at what I've had to do with roll call, for those of you that, that haven't seen it before, roll call audio, it's, it's just like a little kind of audio only web color because it's audio only. Um, I can, take that audio that's coming out and then pass it through a bunch of the other web audio APIs in order to actually do all the stuff that you need to do with it. But, you know, if you look at video, you, you really can't mess with it very much. You, you don't get access to the kinds of things that you need to. Um, 
additionally, even with just audio calls, like that, that app is never really going to work for more than nine people because then you need to create like super nodes and proxy audio data and you don't have access to do that at the level that you need to. Um, however, I will say that the, the data channel, which is actually newer than any of the audio and video stuff in WebRTC, the the data channel has not been there as long and is already kind of farther along in terms of real use cases. So WebTorrent, uh, like I said, is using it. Um, the failure, is the getting... failure mode there, just to be clear, is that mm -hmm. if you have nine people you're talking to, you have to make a connection with each of them and each person has to send every single person their audio, audio individually. Yep. So you're yep. uploading nine versions of your audio or eight versions of your audio. to, to Everyone is uploading eight versions of their audio. Okay. Exactly. And, and, and also everybody in the network has to be directly connected to everybody else in the network. Whereas if you have, say, a data network, you could have thousands of nodes with, you know, just with different nodes connecting them in between and the data flowing between them. But you right. don't really have access to pass the audio through that way. Um, anyway, so the, the web, web torrent is like quite a bit farther along. It's using the data channel. Um, and there is, I, I can't find the, the name of it, but there's actually like kind of a, a YouTube-ish competitor um, for, to, that is using WebTorrent. And um, so th this is actually kind of cool. So if you, if you go back to... Wait, did, you, um, did you laugh at the idea of a YouTube competitor? Was that that little giggle? <laughs> no, no. Well, yeah, yeah. I, I am somewhat skeptical of a YouTube competitor. Um, but I, 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 so uh, Popcorn Time which is, uh, I, I don't know if you can still download it off of random weird websites or whatever, but Popcorn Time will... Popcorn, yeah, Pop Popcorn Time is basically like this Apple TV-like application that is just beautiful that um, will go out onto peer-to-peer -peer networks, find all the latest movies and things that you're not even supposed to have, and then literally like you click a button and they just start streaming and you can view them right away. So not the whole like normal rigmarole with BitTorrent where you like download a torrent and add it into an app and then wait for that app to finish and da da da. It's literally just, it just plays. Um, like all of the underlying code there is all in Node.js. <laughs> um, and a lot of it was written by uh, Matthias Boos, who who now works on the DAP project. Um, and a lot of the people that made popcorn time are like in hiding or <laughs> arrested or something for various laws, but he actually only worked on the, the lower level libraries. And so that never happened. And he's, he's a free man. Um, but, uh, he is doing amazing peer to peer work still. Um, but the, the big innovation that he figured out is that, okay, we, we can actually in the BitTorrent protocol prioritize getting earlier parts of this file. We don't have to only go after um, what BitTorrent considers like the, the least active parts of the file to keep it alive. And because we can do that and because we have node streams and because we can do all of this like really fancy math on the back end, we can stream, you know, this video over a peer-to-peer -peer network in all of these different chunks from all these different pieces. It's really cool. Um, and now that's been adapted to WebTorrent and you can just use that in your browser now. And so with this uh, YouTube competitor, that's how it's working. Um, and WebTorrent allows you to add like a, a web URL for like a, basically as a sort of uh, peer of last resort. So if you can't get any data on the peer-to-peer -peer network, like the file is not alive, it'll just fall back to the CDN essentially. Um, so you can actually have like a really decent um, experience for watching, you know, videos on the web just entirely over peer-to-peer -peer networks. Um, and the cool thing, you know, for the creators of this service is that their bandwidth bill is going to be a fraction of what YouTube's bandwidth bill is, right? Yeah, but everyone else's bandwidth bill is going to be a fraction higher than, a large fraction higher than they're used to. Yeah, but no, it won't because you don't pay for bandwidth that way as a consumer. <laughs> you don't. You don't. Uh, I think a lot of people do. Um, people definitely have caps. Uh, most people. Uh, I think these days, I believe this is an accurate statement. Most people watch videos on their phone. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, definitely. I, yeah. Yeah. So I, I will also say that, like, I don't know where this ended up and I have no kind of insider knowledge on this, but um, Netflix did like prominently promote a position of web torrent expert that they wanted to hire. Um, so Netflix was really trying to bring in somebody that knew web torrent that they could maybe integrate web torrent into their services. So they could maybe make their bandwidth bills go down a little bit as well. So this may end up being, you know, something that really underlies a lot more than just, you know, random pirate sites. Yeah. I'd, I'd be interested. Like if you click that button, you get a $2 off a month, you know, something like that, right? Like, what would the incentive be for someone to be like, this could potentially be flaky every once in a while if, you know, there's a bad note or, you know, like, it's, it's not going to be as solid uh, see, for see, a while, uh, right? Well, see, I'm, I'm more interested in just like, how do we make it more solid, right? So 
there, sure. there's a couple of techniques that you can use to make it more solid. So for instance, um, but uh, before, like the point I guess I'm making mm -hmm. is you agree to upload data to other people. You agree to stream it to other people who you right. don't know, right? Like you're agreeing to be mm -hmm. part of that network. Um, and so that, that's a, like I get $2 for being part of the network versus just being a consumer of the network. So, you know, something like that could be cool. Anyways, yeah, go ahead. Making the network point. better. I think for a lot of these, though, like you're only really sharing it while you're watching it. You're not like, you know, still uploading it in the background or something like that. That's just not an experience that people are used to. But yeah, yeah I, I think that, that there's a couple of ways that you can overcome the performance issues. One is that if you can establish the network that you're going to get the content from before you need the content, then you're actually going to be faster than traditional websites, right? Because you're you're already going to actually have a pretty good understanding of where this content is and how to get sure, it in direct isn't connections the, already established. That's the exact um, opposite of what you just said, though, where you said you're never, never going to be downloading something or, or sharing something whenever yes, yes, yes. So, you're so not so using it. You're right. You're right. I'm just trying to iterate over them. The, the, the other is, is, is literally just to say, okay, we want a fast start to this and we know how, like, like, Netflix already definitely knows how much like of the file that they need to get in order to just, you know, ensure that it will play immediately and keep playing without buffering. Right. So let's right. let's get that from the CDN um, and then, you know, start filling in the rest of the file from this, the, you know, content network. Sure. Or even like uh, Netflix has quite a bit of data and are very good at knowing what you're going to watch next. Like mm. probably with, you know, 70 percent accuracy or something like that. Oh, that's uh, like that's, no, oh, that's no. really smart. And so oh they could God. still that's even brilliant. use the peer-to-peer -to, -peer to just like quickly download the first two minutes of the top 22 things that you're gonna probably watch next that, that's that could scary a pretty good solution. yeah that would that would be really really fast <laughs> really good that's a really good idea yeah i mean they oh, could already man. do that for what it's worth <laughs> they don't need the peer-to-peer -peer stuff they could just... all right so I, I think we're due for another break when we come back alex might finish his netflix interview um or <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, we're actually going to get into the project of the week when we come back. Hey, friends, I'm dropping the background music on this break because I want you to completely focus on what I'm about to tell you. I want to tell you about our friends at Hired. We've been hearing lots of great things about them and their process to help developers find great jobs. So we reached out to them. And guess what? They were excited to work with us. And we partnered with Hired because they're different. They're an intelligent talent matching platform for full-time and contract jobs in engineering, development, design, product management, and even data science. Here's how it works. Instead of endlessly applying to companies hoping for the best, Hired puts you in full control of when and how you connect with interesting opportunities. After you complete one simple application, top employers apply to hire you. Over a four-week time frame, you'll receive personalized interview requests, upfront selling information, and all this will help you to make better, more informed decisions about your next steps towards the opportunities you like to pursue. And the best part is Hired is free. It won't cost you anything. Even better, they pay you to get hired. Head to Hired.com slash changelog. Don't Google it. This URL is the only way to double that hiring bonus. Once again, Hired.com slash changelog. And now back to the show. And we're back. All right. Project of the week this week is PouchDB. Woohoo! Um, everybody out there who's who's a Nolan Lawson fan, I think, is, is going to get a little giddy at this one. Everyone's a Nolan Lawson fan. It's a good point. It's a very good point. So PouchDB is a scaled down uh, version of CouchDB. For those of you that uh, you know don't know about CouchDB or just kind of don't want to dive into all of that. CouchDB, the, the one thing that makes CouchDB kind of unique is that it has a very different data replication model. So rather than kind of having these, you know, master slave, like, you know, consistency, da, da, da. Um, the way that CouchDB looks at it is like, you will probably eventually need to take this data offline. And it's, it, so it has a model based on actually Lotus Notes from back in the day. So the way that you store data is that you, you, you know, you get these uh, revision numbers that allow you to essentially, you know, sync data with other people over time, whether you go online or offline, and you can handle these, what, we, what you call three-way sync problems, where it's not just two people syncing back and forth, but there's actually like a third person, and they're going to get data out of order from these different people, and they're going to get resolutions to that data. And so how do you solve that, right? Because that problem explodes once you add more than three people, essentially. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really, really good project. I encourage everybody to check it out. Uh, what, are you, what are your thoughts on this, Rachel? Have you used PatchDB at all? 
I have not used PouchDB. Um, I am actually working on a new project and was trying to decide which database to use. And Pouch was one of the ones that I was considering only because like, I honestly haven't, I have not very much database experience aside from like your average run of the mill MySQL database, or um, I've set up Postgres a few times. So like maybe what what's a good, you can tell me, you tell me what's a good situation to use PouchDB over uh, some of the other options that there are. Uh, if you're doing anything offline, there's really nothing else. <laughs> really. That um, makes sense. Plain local storage. <laughs> yeah. Explain local storage or explain just index plain, DB. Just, I said just plain local storage, right? Like <laughs> you, you can just use the raw <laughs> tools, but syncing becomes a manual process, I think is mm-hmm. kind of the difference. Yeah, yeah. Syncing, syncing becomes problematic. I think also um, uh, PouchDB is really cool because it's, it's so portable. So it works. It runs in the browser. It runs in Node. It runs in Node on top of a bunch of different uh, looking databases. So the underlying data structures that are based on uh, LevelDB. Um, so if, you, if your data kind of looks different than other people's data, you may find that one of these optimizes it better than another. So you can kind of swap them out and stuff like that. Um, it's, it's pretty cool. It also, you know, syncs with pouch or sorry, with, with CouchDB normally. So, um, you know, IBM, uh, cloud so you can sync with them and with anybody else who runs a couch DB somewhere. Cool. Uh, yeah. The, the, the project has a pretty interesting history, um, that I think that we have time to get into. Um, and, and there, and I think Nolan's given a few talks about this because I, I think that in this, in this kind of new world of open source, everybody who starts a project really feels this like burden to continue to do it indefinitely. And one of the cool things about patch DB is how many hands it's kind of like fallen through. Um, and so, uh, in, in 2009, I left Mozilla to go to the CouchDB company, which at the, it had like more names than products that got released. So I won't get into the name of the company, um, because I think everybody saw it with a different name. Um, but while it was there, um, Mozilla was was working on a new standard for the browser with IndexedDB. Um, and this had come out of, you know, people not liking WebSQL. And one of the questions that they had was, you know, can we build a CouchDB on top of this? Um, because they didn't want to ratify the standard until they knew that a CouchDB could be built on top of it. So as a proof of concept, I wrote this thing that was just like a CouchDB implementation on top of um, their standard. It wasn't in any browser yet. Um, they, they were sending me one-off builds of Firefox that had the standard in it. Um, so that was kind of how the project started. And then it just kind of sat there as like this proof of concept on GitHub that nobody was really looking at. Um, and Dale Harvey, who was also who was who was doing the opposite, he was at the CouchDB company with me, and then he was moving on to Mozilla. <laughs> he took an interest in the project and was like, "Oh, you know, I really want to get like a couple more things going." And I was like, "Here you go. Here's all the commits and everything." And then he built like a much bigger community around it and a bunch of different stuff. Um, and then eventually he kind of got tired of it. And then Nolan Lawson was like, oh, I have all these big ideas for, you know, integrating it with all this different level DB stuff that's going on. And um, and now Nolan has kind of taken on the reins and has been leading the project for quite a while. And there's all these different contributors and stuff to it. So it has like a really nice rich history um, that isn't about like any kind of individual person, which is really cool. It's really kind of emblematic of the project. Yeah. Like oh, the, and 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 credit where credits due. Max Ogden came up with the name PouchDB. <laughs> He's very into puns, and he thought that it was like, like a, 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 it's it's a small database. It's like a database that you put in your pocket, like a pouch. And so that's where the name mm-hmm. came from. Just FYI on that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you know any like uh, production stuff that uses it? Yeah, yeah. So there's, um, oh, I, I can't recall, like the, there was like this hospital software that was using it. Um, uh, Hoodie uses PouchDB. So a big part of the Hoodie project is, is PouchDB. And they've done a bunch of um, different big projects for places that, that use the full Hoodie stack and, and especially PouchDB. One of which is, um, oh, I think it's, it, it was one of the things that was going on in Africa, but essentially it was like it, this application for people doing a lot of on the ground, uh, working with different people and kind of cataloging like various symptoms that they have or, or other stuff. And then eventually kind of syncing that with everybody else and making sure that it, that it works and that people don't kind of overlap and that everybody's getting all the data, but they're working constantly in areas that don't have enough internet for them to use. So 
it needed to work offline. Cool. I think that um, the the GitHub for PouchDB2 is also super friendly to people that are interested in trying to contribute to it. I think that also has a lot to do with like um, the kind of good stuff that Nolan encourages in open source and the hoodie people as well. Since I I know at least, well, Gregor does a lot of stuff with Pouch who works at Hoodie and they try and do a lot of things with like your first PR. So it's just kind of like, mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's pretty much like how I found out about PouchDB because I was like, they're nice. Maybe yeah. I'll look at it. Yeah, I mean, if you if you were going to build a spectrum of kind of like uh, projects that are really good at the community side of stuff, have, have, you know, bring in tons of people are super nice, constantly getting new contributors, have contributors doing lots of non code tasks as well. Hoodie is like kind of the far end of the spectrum, like they're doing the best that you could probably ever do with that. And then everybody else falls somewhere high of where they are. Um, They're really, really good people. Um, Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're into programming and wanting to get into open source, I would encourage you to look at hoodie um, because they'll they'll have something great for you and they'll treat you really well and they're just great people all around there's also stuff that's tagged for first time contribution and like non-code contributions so there's some nice options in there jen turner just mentioned that uh e-health africa is the app that i was just talking about um so she she popped into the chat and and said us correct on that stuff so cool cool okay i think that we're we're probably ready to move on to our picks now so, Rachel, I know that you've got your pick all lined up. Why don't you tell us about yes, that? Yes, I do. My pick of the week, which um, I don't know, it's pretty popular and it's extra cute and I'm excited. It's called Tiny Care Terminal and it's made by um, Monica. I, I don't know if I'm going to say her last name right. Uh, Din Kalesko. Dinkulescu, who's not world, not Waldorf on GitHub. It is a Node.js app that, well, it's a JavaScript application that um, lets you pull in. It's basically like a dashboard, but right in your terminal. And it's there to like, let you know what you're, what you've worked on recently with your GitHub uh, commits for like today, the current day and the previous week. And then it also, this is my favorite part. It pulls in um, three little current Twitter feeds, one from Tiny Carebot, one from Self Carebot, and one from Magic Realism Bot, which are just amazingly silly. Well, two of them are very nice. Like they're trying to help you have a good day and like take care of yourself. And then the Magical Realism Bot is ridiculous uh if you know what magical realism is it's mostly a literary and film genre type of thing that is just very fantastical and so you'll get like a little tweet that says i'm reading one now a mermaid paints a picture of a glass circus tent like they're just silly but it's nice um and i don't know i think it's nice that people don't really build uh as far as i know of like not things for the terminal that aren't actual tools like this is just something nice and i like that and i wish more people would just build nice things i'll paste it into js party there you go awesome alex cool uh mine's pretty quick and easy uh it's by paul irish uh it's called pw metrics um it's a command line application stands for progressive web metrics he uses Google's Lighthouse uh, performance measurement tool uh, and kind of combines it with the command line. So you just say PW metrics and then give it a URL and it'll use kind of some default configuration and give you this nice pretty graph of uh, your first content paint, your first visual change, uh, a speed index, perception, time to interact it. Uh, time to interactive and, and first meaningful paint. So it kind of gives you a bunch of like quick, easy stats. Uh, and so you no longer have to like go to the Lighthouse beta webpage and type in your URL and stuff like that. You could, I don't know if I'd make this part of like your build uh, process because you're kind of relying on other people's, oh no, you're not, it, it runs uh, locally. So it runs um, like a Chrome instance here. So you'd need like a headless Chrome or, or you need the ability to like XVFB or something like that on your build servers. But you could probably put this in maybe a non-critical build path and then like get performance metrics from every single commit that you ever make to your stuff and it'd be really nifty. Some really good front end ops right there. 
Cool, cool. Awesome. So mine is a website. Uh, it's called GitHub. I, I really, it's really cool. There's projects. People should check it. No, I'm kidding. This is not that my my pick is not GitHub. Um, so my pick is is really uh, self-promotional this week. Um, Request for Commits is a, another podcast that I do on the Changelog Network with Nadia Eggball, um, where we we dive really, really deep into open source. Um, so you can check out season one. We record them in season so that we can kind of like really think about who to talk to and what we're going to think about in terms of themes for the, the whole season. But we have recorded some more episodes and they will be coming soon to the changelog feed. So to the master feed and to the RFC feed. But in the meantime, you can go and check out the old episodes because they're all very, very timeless there. There's no news in them. It's all <laughs> we talk to a lot of people about projects that have been around for like 10 years. So um, there's also a great if you if you're really interested in web stuff, I highly recommend um, the one with Brendan Ike, where we get into kind of the history of the web and how browsers have been funded um, and sustained over time. So check that out. Uh, Changelog.com slash RFC. That's our show. Thanks, everybody, for showing up. Rate us on iTunes. Do all kinds of things to promote us. Tell your friends. Tell your mother. Even if she doesn't write JavaScript, she can learn. Um, That's it. Bye. (laughs) All right. That wraps up this episode of JS Party. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the shows. Head to changelaw.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at JSPartyFM. Special thanks to our sponsors, Sentry and Hired. Also, thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner, at thefastly.com to learn more. This episode was edited by Jonathan Youngblood, and the theme music for JS Party is produced by Breakmaster Cylinder. We'll see you again next week. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.